Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart, and for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans about their experience of war. Join me on a journey through the pages of history. Welcome to Peter Hart's Military History. Hello, good morning. This is Sunday morning and I've rested control. This is Peter Hart's Military History Podcast featuring Gary Bain. He's my favourite. Who are you? Peter Hart. Hello, Peter. What are we doing today? Well, we're doing... Well, it's after it's after the Battle of El Alamein. We're doing the South Dots of Sars, uh, the... That's 107 Regiment, uh, or is it now? Is it, Gary? It isn't. It's 107 Battery within 7th Medium Regiment. And yeah, there wasn't a, a lot left, was there, after uh, our last podcast? And uh, this is the advance to Tunis. Um, um, uh, so they've fought in the Battle of El Alamein. They've been re-equipped with 5.5-inch bangy things. And that, to use an audio equivalent, is the difference between tap and... Kaboom! Yeah, we made the point, didn't we, that the 5.5 gun, gun, uh, 5.5 inch guns were uh, a massive advancement for them, and it, it changes the whole nature of the battle for the South. Not as ours, they start to notice because they're now advancing through the desert. And it, you did, do you know something? Except for the forward observation teams, they're often quite remote from the from the the battle their guns have got a range of oh dear i should have looked it up but say twenty thousand yards it's a long way let's say that statistics are really not my thing and unless they get the stokers come screaming across the battlefield they're not really that close to the action that they sort of move it's a war of movement they sort of move up uh they fire a barrage, drop into action fire off a barrage then move to the next stopping point they, they're so very did they, did they, did they dig gun pits still no, no time really, Gary. They're, they're, they're just dropping into action in the open ground. Um, but, but the thing about that is, it does mean that um, they have to be able to do everything quickly. And they develop this idea of crash action, where every second makes a difference between life and death. And this is one of my favourites. Uh, Second Lieutenant Bob Folds. Uh, he, he had been a sergeant in the early... In, yeah. So we've had him before, but he was a sergeant then. Uh, and he fought at El Alamein, and now he's with B Troop 107 Battery. And he said this, 
The purpose of crash action was to get from guns on the move to an aimed round on the ground in the shortest possible time. An OP travelling in front of the guns would see a target and bring the guns into action using this map reference to get a round on the ground and then correcting from there. It sounds like some sort of awful TV game show. Round on the ground. Mm. <laughs> but, but it's quite serious because if they don't, it's just very important. Now, after the Battle of El Alamein, uh, on the 22nd of November, they begin a sort of forced march, uh, initially to support 51st Highland Division. They were Scottish, Gary. Uh, and they'd run into a, a German stop line, if you like. It's uh, not a strong defence line, but a defence line that had been established round about El Aguila. Now, we'll try and put a, a map up to, so people can follow what's happening, because I'll be honest with you, I lose track of it sometimes, because it's not, it's not the period of the war, uh, Second World War I'm very familiar. On the way forward, they're passing all their old places they'd been to in the rest, because the thing about the Western Desert, it was just backwards and forward, like a, I was going to say a whore's draws, but that would be offensive and rude. Um, thank goodness I stopped myself, Gary. Um, but they, they went backwards and forwards like anything. That's better. Is that all right, Gary? Have a past. Yes. Oh. <laughs> I'm, so they, I'm trying to work. I'm trying to work out who you have to apologise to. But everybody, best well, not saying anything. It's probably grossly sexist. I apologise. Sorry about that. Uh, Mercer, but true. They went. Well, remember, they we, we did a whole podcast about that. Uh, Sidi Birani, that's near the border. Saloum, uh, that's where the, they'd faced each other for so long. The, 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 while they were in Tobruk, Tobruk itself. You remember Tobruk, Gary? And then. Gazala. And on their way, they pass close to the cauldron and pass to the Knightsbridge box. Now, the Knightsbridge box is where, that's where the Battle of Knightsbridge was. And it must have been weird for, the, for the very few of the South Otazars left who'd been there because they were mostly either wiped out or taken prisoner. What does uh, Lieutenant Eric Dobson uh, of 107 Battery say, uh, Gary? Battery Sergeant Major. Beardle paid a visit to the scene of the South Knot's great stand. He found Major Barber's armoured car with its wireless aerial still in its bracket. Three guns of Captain Chadburn's troop were still in their pits, all spiked, and there were many burnt-out vehicles. He picked up a notebook belonging to Bombardier Bowden, a 25-pounder rammer from Sea Troop's position and a telephone. The whole area was as it had been left though a foot-deep layer of fine sand covered everything. I remember when I've just done these interviews, and I remember reading that, because that's from the, uh, the, the, the history of the South Otsazars that Dobson wrote. Um, and I remember reading that, thinking, God, I'd like to go there. And then since then, the whole that, that area has become a bit more dangerous than it was. Well, it was in Libya, which wasn't exactly a friendly country to start with. Uh, but the idea of, of everything still being there, and I don't know whether it's still there now, but it would be fascinating to, to go there. Now, uh, on and on goes the advance, and Benghazi falls the 20th of November. Um, but when, when 107th get to El Aguila, they, they, they join with all the other regiments, the medium regiments, and they're, they're starting. This is a change in the war. Instead of fighting as a battery or as a regiment, they're now fighting as a, as a mass conglomeration of artillery. Uh, this is the thing we talked about uh, before, about El Alamein. They're starting to use the massed power of the guns. What does that remind you of? The Great War. It's very, they're starting to get back to what they'd learnt in the First World War. Guns are most powerful and they're bounded together. So they're, they're going to provide a massive support barrage for the assault of the 51st Highland Division. However, <laughs> the best laid plans of mice and men go wrong. And what, 
Guess what happened, Gary? Have a guess. Guess what happened? I don't know. I'm I'm sulking now because when you said, what does that remind you of? I was just about to say the Great War and you said the Great War and oh, stole my moment of, of supreme achievement. It's the only thing I know. You would have got it. I'm sorry. Gary. I've right. got it wrong. Would you like to say the Great War again so people can listen? It reminds me, Pete, of the Great War. Don't, Gary, that's brilliant of you. We'll edit that in, Gary. All right. Uh, so uh, they, they launch a, a massive barrage. and uh, But Rommel, by this time, he knows what's going on on the Eastern Front. Uh, he knows that the Allied, they've landed Operation Torture. That's been launched on the 8th of November. That's earlier uh, in Algeria. And he, he's not going to get the reinforcement, the supplies he needs. And he's fearful he's going to be outmaneuvered by, by Montgomery. You want to be, you want to show yourself in a highlight. So what, 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 what might Rob Montgomery, what, what might Rommel fear Montgomery would do when he's sat in this defence line at El Aguila? What might Montgomery? He'd be worried about being outflanked. Yeah, and that's a, that's desert warfare, isn't it? You form a you form a line in the desert, and the bunkers go around the top end or the the south end. So they presumably he withdraws. He does withdraw, so they fire a lot of the barrage. <laughs> and then the Scots make their big attack, their big moment of glory. And a German... In their kilts, bits waving. Yeah, God, that must be a sight, Gary. I can see it now. Sand oh. everywhere. <laughs> that must be a problem in the kilt. We must do a podcast on the kilt in various different weather conditions and terrains. That'll be a great one. It will. I'm sure our punters would love that. What do we call them punters? They don't actually pay anything. All these podcasts are free. So are we, by the way. <laughs> anyway, they found the Germans had gone. Uh, now, during this time, one of the people we've talked about a lot, Ivor Birkin, Captain Ivor Birkin, he was the one who uh, was there when his, his brother was killed on the 27th of May. You might remember that awful scene. His brother had a, a shell go basically through his middle. Um, and he's come back and he's given command of B Troop. There's two troops, A and B Troop, within 107 Battery. They are the South Knots Hussars now. And he's, he, he, this is quite a big thing. He's an original South Knots Hussar officer. He's one of the uh, the knobs, as you would call them, Gary. Um, uh, he's well off. Um, and he was all, he had been regarded as the weakest of the Birkin clan because there was Peter Birkin, who was a sort of rugger, rugger playing Oh, uh, Prince Amongst Men, uh, you know, a bit larger-than-life character. And Jerry Birkin, who you remember, was killed. Uh, he's the one who was killed. He, he's got an unmilitary appearance. Now, I've often thought of, that you have an unmilitary appearance, but you actually have a distinguished military career. So, uh, But he's got, he had childhood polio. He, he's got wounded, so he's got a pronounced limp. And uh, can you imagine how soldiers like yourself reacted to an officer like him? Well, I should imagine they found him quite amusing. Yeah. So they, Subject they, of a number of jokes, I would have thought. Yeah. Uh, affectionate, usually. You know the British Army, it's not always affectionate, is it? But if he was competent, they'd respect him. And he was competent, and he was brave, and uh, he sort of carried the flame for the old South Hussars, because... Uh, so, <laughs> and, and he always wanted to get the regiment reformed, because remember, it's only a battery now. Now, so the 7th medium, as they are now, the whole of the 7th medium Royal Artillery, including 107, uh, then move forward and bivouac on the 23rd of December. And they're right next to the, the Marble Arch, which was that big thing that Mussolini had built. I don't know why. Uh, what, the centre of London? 
No, not the centre of London. In the centre of the Tripolitanian desert or somewhere, I expect. Anyway, he'd, I think he built it to, well, I don't know why he built it, celebrate sausages or something. Well, I think uh, it was the uh, colonisation of uh, Tripolitania. Is that what you say? <laughs> oh, well, that's what it is. Anyway, uh, and they then move up to CERT. And, and here they're now supporting the 7th Armoured Division. And what was their nickname, Gary? No, I don't know. Desert Rats. That's it! See? You say you don't know. I was hoping to catch you out there. Didn't mind. Oh, I'm so relieved I didn't say the Desert Gerbils. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that would have been better, actually. Um, so, and now, they're now, now let's talk a bit about the, the colonel of the South Otsalas. We mentioned him in the podcast uh, about El Alamein. But he's Toc uh, Elton. He's bad-tempered, so we quite like that. We do like bad-tempered people. That's why we like Matt McLaughlin. Because he's very bad-tempered, isn't he? He's always telling us off for mispronouncing his name, forgetting the name of the book. What is that book called? Which one? The Gallipoli Evacuation. I've remembered it, Matt. Buy your copy today. Living History tv.com see how i slipped that in they'll never that, that professionalism itself and uh, anyway so that they, they um that he's got new techniques he's he's a real thinker when it comes to artillery techniques and he, he he's invented one called snap monster snap monster and this isn't some sort of card game you used to play in your youth gary although you didn't have any friends to play snap with did you so it was a bit boring solo snap you seem to be going off piste quite a lot today oh, yeah. so he invented snap monster what is snap monster gary well he realized that the maps of the area were pretty rubbish frankly and so uh, they were advancing into areas without really knowing what they were moving into um so he made it, it, it so you couldn't shoot off the map basically so they got an error. Uh, is it what we're talking? Uh, five or ten yards, or or, or or is it more? No, seven, seven, seven. you could be wrong by several hundred yards. Um, so he, he had to devise other areas. And our good friend Lieutenant Eric Dobson says Elton devised Snap Monster himself with the finishing touches supplied by Major Wainwright, second in command, and a very expert gunner. The idea was that the regiment should be travelling along in open formation. The forward observing officer should shout into the wireless, Snap Monster! Whereon everyone who heard, heard it waved check-coloured flags. Sounds a bit like a game, doesn't it? It does. The guns dropped their trails where they were. The first into action fired two high airburst rounds. All the other troops took their locations from the bearings to these bursts. And within three minutes, the regiment should be in action. All troops worked in and day out. Sorry, all troops worked day in and day out, perfecting the system and improving times. Because what they'd do is that the observation office, the people further forward, would see where these airbursts went off, and they would correct. They'd send corrections back, and uh, it's, it's a good system. Now, the best time was achieved by one of our old favourites. Do you remember from the early podcast, Albert Swinton? He's now a sergeant. And his gun section got a shell in the air in 20 seconds than the flag signal. I find that unbelievable, but but whatever. You know, it's it's uh, that's what these people... Sorry, did you just say, but whatever? Yeah, I'm, I'm getting down with the kids. <laughs> Matt said we've got to get a larger, you know, a bigger fan base. Wow. So they're now, they're now moving up behind the advancing division, which I think we, we said was a desert rat. And... Uh, 
Every so often, the German Stukas would come over. Now, we had air superiority, but the, the Stukas would make occasional raids. So you've got another quote from Eric Dobson, haven't you? Tell us about that. Just before dark, there was a fierce Stuka raid which killed Gunnershaw of B Troop. Lieutenant Westlake, who was sheltering under the same armoured car, and Captain Birkin, who was a few yards away, had lucky escapes. Just after nightfall, in the middle of the battery lager, the petrol lorry caught fire, and there were heroic attempts to extinguish the flames before the Stukas should be invited to return and do even more damage. Somehow, an echelon party, led by Captain Rickard and Battery Sergeant Major Beardle, managed to save everything except the lorry's canopy and superstructure. Walford, Aitken and Bowler, among others, calmly stood on top of the blazing truck and threw off tins full of petrol. Now, this is the beauty of having done so many interviews. You mentioned Lieutenant Westlake, who was under the same armoured car. Here is a quote from 2nd Lieutenant Charles Westlake. He was with A Troop. And he said this, Day after day, we'd be on the move. You just followed on the tracks of hundreds and thousands of vehicles that had gone before you without knowing exactly where you were going. Part of the country was absolutely frightful. For some days, we churned over areas of very rocky desert. Great big rocks a foot to 18 inches across. And you were bouncing from one to another. You couldn't do anything else but go in bottom gear. All these vehicles, all of them loaded right down to flat springs. They were grinding over this awful country. The whole vehicle was shaking all over the place. The engine was roaring away. The gears were screaming. And you kept on like this for hour after hour after hour. Why all the vehicles didn't just fall into bits, I don't know. And of course, some of them did. Uh, there was an enormous number of breakdowns. And of course, the, the MT people were kept as busy as anything. The, the, the workshops, everything. Sorry, Gary. And it weren't just the lorries, was it? It was the gun towers as well. You've got to, you've got to remember that you're moving the guns. Yeah, of course, of course, of course, of course. I just wanted to demonstrate that I could say gun towers. You've really mastered that. It's, I've mastered it. You have. Now, um, one, one of the best moments that Dobson remembered was when they came out. Oh, uh, where did they come out? Oh, yeah, sorry, it was Tahuna. Tahuna. Um, I, I'm sorry, I, I forgot the name of the place. It was You're on the approaches to Tripoli itself. And just before you get there, there's a place called Tahuna, just uh, where you come out of the desert. And you're going to be Eric Dobson again, aren't you, Gary? Yeah, I mean, this is quite unusual because he's, he's describing a scene you wouldn't associate with the desert. He says, no. it seemed that Utopia had been reached, for at Tahuna, 20 miles south of Tripoli, there was the wonderful sight, after seven months of desert sand and scrub, of fields laid out in beautiful symmetry, from a ridge miles away one could see the green vegetable patches, the neat, orderly and trim white farmhouses. That night's gun position was in fact in an orchard. Fabulous. A 23rd of January, Tripoli falls to the 7th Armour Division. Uh, you might think this is it, but North Africa is still not being cleared. Rommel's now in charge of... We always call it the Africa Corps, don't we? But it's actually Axis Army Group Africa uh, with the 5th Panzer Army. That's, uh, you'll know him well, Gary, from your studies. General Hans-Jürgen von Arnim. Uh, he was facing the British 1st Army, and that was commanded by Lieutenant General Kenneth Anderson. And then the 1st Italian Army was under General Giovanni Messi. He's the one facing the, the 8th Army. So... The, the, the situation, it's not the Desert Fox versus Montgomery anymore. Montgomery's now above and looking after the whole of North Africa. And new characters are starting to come in. Um, 
the Operation Torch, it's held up. The, the dash for Tunis, they used to call it. Well, that's failed. Uh, and there's still plenty of hard fighting ahead for both the First Army, that's the Operation Tar- Torch, once the Americans and the British in there, and for the British Eighth Army. Uh, Tripoli is just, just, well, what would you call it, Gary? Uh, um, it's, uh, it's a staging post. Yeah. And don't forget, Rommel's got reinforcements over the winter as well. So it, it, it's... It's starting to, to look as if there's lots more fight, fighting to come. So it's more difficult to get reinforcements, but it can still be done. And he has had some come in. Uh, now, the 7th Armoured Division, uh, uh, they're, they're off. Uh, they then get a period uh, of leave, the South Otisars, back at, at uh, Tripoli. And this is a, a gunner, Frank Penlington, A Troop 107 Badger, who I remember was Welsh. <laughs> Do you? I thought he came from London. All right, London it is. We had a few days there in Tripoli, Boyle. We were allowed to go into Tripoli itself. I went in by foot and I could see all these lovely big houses with iron balconies and there was a queue outside some of them. I thought there was some food or something. I was fond of my stomach those days. Pregnant pause there, Peter. I'm saying nothing. I joined a queue outside one of these big houses. I was standing in this queue for probably five or six minutes. And I said to this bloke by me, what are we queuing up for here? He looked at me and said, this is a brothel. We're queuing up for the brothel. Then it dawned on me. I said, oh, well, I was too innocent then. Good God, I never dreamt of anything like that. That's a lovely, innocent quote. Uh, while they were there, they had a big joint parade with 64th Medium uh, uh, Regiment. And they had all of that. There's 16 massive... Me- there's all these massive medium guns drawn up. And, and they have a, a VIP visitor. Uh, now, how, Gary, you were in the British Army. How does the average British soldier react to the news that their prime minister or some other uh, visiting dignitary is coming? How do they... Do they feel good about it? Are they happy? Excellent. We can polish everything. That's it. So you're going to be gunner Ernie Hurry of A Troop 107 Battery. What, what does Ernie say? The order came to ball the wagons up, to clean the guns, because Winston Churchill was going to inspect us. I thought, how ridiculous. The guns and the wagons were cleaned with diesel oil and oh, they shone like anything. They really were clean. The ends of the guns were burnished. Now, the thing about politicians like Churchill is they're good at it. So, actually, he made a big fuss of them at this, in, and they, so that sort of made them feel a bit better about it. Uh, he also showed he'd been well briefed. And this is uh, Second Lieutenant Bob Folds uh, again. And he said, Churchill came in some sort of staff car, which he abandoned, and he walked around the whole of the parade, up and down all the ranks, stopping on numerous occasions to talk to everyone. Gunners, officers, it made no odds. He gave us a little talk and a V sign at the end of it. (laughs) Good old Churchill. He seemed very pale, as if he lived underground, against the tanned and almost blackened faces of all the troops on parade. He seemed a very pale figure. He certainly seemed a pugnacious one. He was popular. Of course, that's an officer's perspective. And, and this is crucial to, to remember. You see, Ernie Harry has one perspective. Ah, oh, 
I've got a polished blazer. <laughs> and and then he got the officer. Hey, it was The men loved him. Right. So then they have a bit of a rest period. And during that period, Tock Elton, Colonel Tock Elton, he leaves. He goes to command the new, newly formed 5th Army Group Royal Artillery. Now, this AGRA, as it was called, Army Group Royal Artillery, these are really important. This is the... The, the idea of concentrating artillery made flesh. This is a group of medium regiments, all with huge bangy things, to use a technical term, that, that concentrate fire and make a significant tactical difference on the battlefield. Whereas a battery or a regiment can only do so much. A huge agra can actually just blast everything in front of them to smithereens. And Elton was partially responsible for for that happening, wasn't he? he it made... was yes. That that's that's the whole thing. He's he's really right at the forefront of the development of the Agras. Spot well spotted, Gary. Um, uh, the, the, so now they've now moved, and this is the thing I said at the start. We start. You're not in. A, you're not supporting a battalion now, like say they were in the breakout of Tobruk. You're, you're supporting a core operation. You're supporting two divisions. You're supporting. Five or six brigades. This is big operations. You're no longer in the front line. You are in the front line, but yet you're set back from it. You see what I mean? Now, he's replaced by Colonel Miles Wood, an old regular officer. Now, he wasn't as abrasive as Elton, so we don't like him as much. And uh, But he, too, was upset by one thing, and this had upset Elton. And this was the continued intransigence of the South Hussars, who clung to their old acorn badge they would not wear the royal artillery badge and this is lieutenant ian sinclair now i'm glad i'm doing Ian Sinclair because we've mentioned before he was incredibly good looking much like myself he dropped dead gorgeous you'd have called him gary uh he's gorgeous i and often think of the same phrase with you but without the word gorgeous <laughs> how cruel Anyway, here's Lieutenant Ian Sinclair. Uh, he lived in Stockport, when I, just out between Stockport and Manchester when I interviewed him. And he said this, Everybody who came to the battery, no matter where they came from, lost no time in taking away their own artillery cap badge and were pleased and proud to wear the acorn badge. This regular soldier, Colonel Miles Wood, was given command of the 7th Medium Regiment. One of the first things he did was to expect his troops and introduce himself and he gave instructions that the acorn cap badge was not an official badge and that it would be taken off everybody would wear the royal artillery cap badge that caused real pain and agony nobody talked about anything else for days and days but nobody took the cap badge off either wood didn't insist on his order we weren't gonna do it the officers decided they weren't going to do it. He couldn't send us all back to base under arrest. <laughs> That's the blind, what, just mutinous disobedience. What do you call it? Dumb insolence. They just, they just didn't do it. And I think that's great. Uh, it's silly, but it's great. Now, they return to the front, the South Otazars. They've had the rest, and they go to the front in the Medanine Hills. Uh, that, that's at the end of February 1943. And here they're facing, these were former French defensive positions, and they're now, the, the Germans and the Italians have made a strong Marath line, uh, running along a ridge, which is, go, which coincidentally, well, obviously, if you see what it, it runs at right angles to the coast. Uh, now the ground in front is lower, and there's a lot of deep wadis, and in between the wadis there's distinctive hills, and one of them looked like Edinburgh Castle. So have a guess, Gary, have a guess what they called it. Shawadi Wadi. 
the well-known pop band from the 1970s. No, they they call things what they say, so I would imagine they called it Edinburgh Castle. Literal-minded chaps. So the British gather their strength ready for the attack, uh, but they're also wary of a German spoiling attack, because they're not particularly aware that Rommel's not in charge. They're, they're very, the Germans are, 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 are sods for this. They will launch spoiling attacks. Now, the South Otsazars are their main battle positions are, are on a road near Edinburgh Castle, and they send a, a troop forward at a time to fire uh, from closer to the front. Uh, which in this the, in this area the, there's the Queen's Royal Surrey Regiment, and I think you wanted to say something about the Queen's Royal Surrey Regiment, just to encapsulate your feelings about them. Fine body, you mean? Words from the heart, Gary. Words from the heart, or actually words from the bane. But there you go. On the night of fifth of March, nineteen forty-three, David Elliot, Elliot uh, so Lieutenant David Elliot, who was six foot six tall, Gary. Now you're a tall lad yourself. I mean, you must be what six five. Um, but you're taller than me, at least, yeah. Uh, he's six foot six. He was really tall. Uh, and he's sent forward with by Ivor Birkin uh, to, to to gain experience. He's only just arrived in one sense. He, 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 well, he'd been there a while, but he needed more experience of OP duties. Uh, he's sent forward just as the Germans are planning a spoiling attack. He doesn't know that, does he? And this is what he says, David Elliott. They'd taken a telephone cable up to the top of a small hill which looked out over the wadi. Then the ground rose up the other side and it went out into the shimmering desert towards where the Germans were supposed to be. You looked at nothing. Nothing was moving. I went up that evening. There was a very, very small place that Ivor or somebody had scraped out, not more than six inches deep because it was so rocky. You couldn't do more than lie down. If you stood up, you'd be on the skyline. Ivor told me we had a limited amount of ammunition and we were only to engage if we saw enough enemy movement. He wasn't anticipating anything. I didn't expect anything. The thing was, he may not have expected anything, but something was going to happen, that's for sure. And at 06.30 on the 6th of March, the German bombardment commenced. They are going to attack. It's a spoiling attack. In other words, an attack to spoil the attack that the British were planning. And it's the bat- this is the Battle of Medanine beginning. Now, uh, <laughs> in front of him, from this hill he's on, this ridge he's on, Elliot could see a full-scale attacks on the way. Uh, what does he say? The sun came up and I could see trucks a long way away, which I had to assume were German. You didn't know they were. So we opened fire on these trucks at a range of about 6,000 yards. It was terribly muddled because of the smoke. We hadn't been firing very long before the word came up that they were short of ammunition. And would I be careful of it? I heard shuffling behind me and there was a major of the Queen's with a moustache and a walking stick climbing up behind me on his belly and he asked me, What's going on? I said, well, we seem to be under attack. Now, things are are looking grim already, but it gets worse and worse and worse as the morning goes on. Uh, Carry on, David. We saw the first tanks through the smoke and heat haze on the far side of the wadi. That's when I realised that things were fairly bad. We called for fire, and my one fear was then that I was shelling an area where our own troops had been but I just had to presume they'd fallen back. The range was rapidly getting shorter and shorter. At one stage, they came on the phone and told me I must stop firing so many shells. I told them I couldn't stop firing. For a while, we fired one gun only. Now, Elliot 
he's, 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 they're starting to get so close, aren't they, that he's starting to become under under really heavy small arms fire, machine guns, rifles. Uh, God. It's getting... Yeah, and he says, he goes on to say, I had my binoculars resting on this stone, watching this escarpment. I don't believe I could be seen at all. We had shells landing mostly behind us and machine gun bullets sprayed out from the tanks going over the top, but I don't believe they were aimed. The line was cut and one of my assistants went back to mend it, which was very brave of him. I saw this large tank come out and smoke on the other side and I called for fire on it and I had my glasses on it. Its barrel slewed round and was pointing over my head. I don't believe that it knew I was there. As I put my binoculars on it, it fired and I saw the armour-piercing shot leave the barrel of the tank about three or four hundred yards away. It came screaming over. I ducked down so quickly I lost my tin hat. At the same time, our fire came down and it retreated back out of sight. I'd survived and the tanks had not got over the edge of the wadi. Your adrenaline flows. Now, they reckoned afterwards, Gary, that those fire orders that he'd put down, they one man, David Elliott, and his signaller, who, of course, are very much at risk, uh, disposed of five of the attacking tanks. That's an amazing achievement. And he would get the military cross for courage under fire for that. Uh, now, meanwhile, the, the, the gunners, the forward troops, B troop, come out, came under fire from a, a new weapon. That was the Nebelwerfer, uh, uh, which I think you've probably heard of. It's, it's the Moaning Mini, as they called it. Now, uh, this is uh, Troop Sergeant Major Harold Harper. Remember when he was just an ordinary trooper? <laughs> we found ourselves in a valley between two mountains. You'd have to be an idiot of a German general not to know where that artillery fire was coming from. Consequently, they brought into action a mortar known as a Nebelwerfer, which screamed as it came over, sounding like an organ grinding. That they used to great effect and plastered this valley. It was only about 500 yards across. There was no escaping it. We were stuck for about four or five days and had to take all that was thrown at us. We were shelled and I dived into a shallow trench not a long way from the cookhouse to the rear of the guns. I laid myself flat in this shallow trench and suddenly felt this terrific burning sensation in my back. I felt this fluid trickling down my back. I thought, this is it. I expected to find a hole in my back. It transpired that the shell had hit the cookhouse and the cook had got on a big Dixie full of McConaughey's stew. He used to put the tins into boiling water. One of these tins had flown into the air and landed on my back. What was running down was McConaughey's stew, not blood. I love that story. Uh, now, the German attack, the spoiling attack, is thrown back. But it did achieve its purpose. It gained the Germans time because they, they, they couldn't cope. Uh, the, the British couldn't throw this attack back and plan their own attack at the same time. That's why it's a spoiling attack. Now, just at this point, uh, the, the battery has a significant loss in its commander. The battery commander is, uh, we talked about it before, is Major Lewis Jones. And he was, he was strict. He was a hard taskmaster. And he'd been out uh, in a jeep with uh, Major, uh, Major Wainwright and, and, a, and a driver, I like his name, Gunner Knott. And, and they went forward in a jeep on a recce and ran over a mine. Mine, uh, that's pretty unlucky. Uh, both the officers were badly uh, injured and uh, they, 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 they never came back. Uh, and, uh, I think I ought to pay tribute to Major Lewis Jones because he wasn't a likeable man. 
by the account of several of the people I interviewed. He was particularly hard to the officers. Uh, David Elliott, for instance, you know, I just said he'd got the MC, but he was convinced he'd never have got the MC if Lewis Jones had been there, because Lewis Jones wouldn't have put him in for it, because he didn't like him. But the point is that whatever his fault, he had taken a bunch of people scraped up from everywhere, the, the survivors, the cooks, the... Uh, the admin people, the, the B-Echelon people, uh, the sweepings of the jails of Cairo, and he'd made them into an effective battery. And I think he should be remembered and congratulated for that. I never got to interview him. I think he was dead by the time I was doing that. Uh, now, the same day, and this is unfortunate in a sense, uh, Colonel Miles Wood, the, co the commander of the whole regiment, was recalled. He was going to a staff post. Uh, and in his place, you get Lieutenant Colonel Stansfield. And he's, he's, he's mild. He's meek and mild, Gary. He's less forceful. <laughs> so, uh, and, um, he's, he, and the, the, the battery gets a, a nicer commander as well. They get Major James Martin. Again, sadly, I never got the chance to interview him. He took over Commander 107, the South Lots And he was, again, he was competent. So was Stansfield. But they're, He's a kinder man. He's less aggressive, less dogmatic. Um, he would consult with the officers. He'd talk to the officers. He treated them as human beings, and he respected their abilities, their expertise, if you like. And in a sense, now the battery's up and running, this gentler approach, this kinder, this, this more considerate approach, is more apposite uh, to, to the situation. Um, so he was quite popular. Now, the, um, there's also another change on the German side. What, 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 what was that, Gary? I think it's at this time, isn't it, that uh, Rommel returns to Germany. Um, so I think uh, command's handed over to General Hans-Jürgen von Arnhem. So the desert fox has left the desert. Oh, no. How will they manage? Uh, anyway. 16th of March, 1943, the Battle of Marath finally begins. The whole of 7th Medium, several other regiments, they're all brought forward to a large wadi and they fire a series of barrage. Uh, they support the Guards Brigade on something called Horseshoe Hill. What do you think that looked like, Gary? <laughs> a horseshoe. <laughs> the main attack by 50th Northumbrian Division, they truly are a fine body of men. And uh, they were followed up by the 51st Highland Division and the 4th Indian Division. And then finally, the 7th Armoured Division was there to exploit. Uh, meanwhile, the 2nd New Zealand Division would make a wide sweep. Guess which direction, Gary? South. Yeah, this is the usual sweep round the edge, yep. Yeah. Uh, now, was this attack a success, Gary? Oh, it must have been, surely. No, I, I think the German defences were, were really strong and they proved too strong, both for the Guards and the 50th Division assaults. They both floundered and, and frankly, they failed. So the follow-up attacks aren't really put in, are they? Now, during this firing, there's an exciting occasion for Dave Tickle. Uh, it's a great name, Sergeant Dave Tickle, David Tickle. He was a lovely man, lived in Nottingham. And uh, his 5.5-inch, something he'd been firing all night in these support barrages. What happens? There was a very loud explosion from right at the front of the gun pit. My first indications were that an enemy shell had landed right at the front of the gun pit. I looked at the gun and I saw the barrel was peeled back and I thought, oh, crikey, yes. Part of it finished up just missing the cookhouse, which was 150 yards to the back of us. The first bloke into the gun pit was Bob Folds. He fully expected to see people plastered about the place, but fortunately nobody got hurt. 
I found a bit of shrapnel at the back of the gun pit and worked it out that it had travelled between one of my gun team and myself, and we were three foot apart, so we were extremely lucky. They were, because this wasn't an enemy shell, was it? It was a misfire. Their own gun, the shell had gone off in the barrel. That's what had burst the barrel. That's what had caused all this. Now, um, once again, Montgomery has to change his plans, doesn't he, after the failure of the Battle of Marath. Uh, well, that staged the Battle of Marath. And uh, Montgomery comes up with a new plan. The 4th Indian Division now move to the half-left, and they're going to pass through the Matmata Mountains. But then the 2nd New Zealand Division are going to go even further to the south, even further outflanking. Uh, and and, and they're, they're going to be assisted by the 1st Armour Division. So this is a, a, the usual thing, the thrust to the open flank of the German positions. Now, the, there was urgent orders that the South Otsasars had to supply a troop to support the Indians, uh, the 4th Indian Division, and B Troop has picked, and they, they're given the best possible matador gun towers and extra ammunition lorries. And why is that? That's because they're going into the mountains. And... And mountains are difficult. The, the, what would you say was the main characteristic of a mountain, Gary, for those those people in England who've never seen one? Well, firstly, a lot of it is going uphill. Secondly, a lot of it is rock and stone. And uh, where it isn't, it'll be loose underfoot. And after you've gone uphill, do you have to go downhill? Well, unless you're going to stay on the top, yes. So... Which wouldn't be advisable. <laughs> So this is Gunnar Reg Cutter. He was the expert driver. He was a brilliant driver. And he said this. At first, we were a little bit worried. We all started to fill in our pay books with wheels in case we didn't come back. Now, I think you should be grateful that he was a Geordie with a really broad Geordie accent. But I've I've given up accents. We came to this cart track, which wound round and round. When he looked over the top, you were talking about a 2,000 foot drop. The guns and matadors were so long and so big that when we were going down, the corners were so acute and the surface was all rubble, you could never get round with a vehicle and gun. You just had to put your brakes on and skit. Oh, God. (laughs) I said that, not him. And the gun and everything would be over the top. I was getting a bit worried. I said to Harper, all these people we know, this is... Harold Harper. I said to Harper, you better stop the troop and tell the commander we'll have to let these guns down on a winch. Each matador went down on their own. Every gun was unlimbered and they were all individually let down on a matador winch. Now, I don't understand that at all, but I think we get the idea of what's going It's What's going on is complicated. Luckily, we did a good job. It took a long time, but we all got down safe and sound. After the operation, the brigadier wanted to know how many guns we'd lost. <laughs> It was so delicate an operation. He got rather a surprise when he was told we were all standing, limbered up and waiting for fresh orders. They'd all got through. Now, what happens next? Is there a big battle when they've got through, Gary? Is there, is there, is there, is there, is there an exciting big battle? No, after all this, they're not needed. Why? Well, because the, uh, the combination of the outflanking uh, by the 4th Division and the wider manoeuvres of the 2nd New Zealand Division, and, of course, not forgetting our good friends, the 1st Army Division. I had Division, forgotten them, Gary. I would forgotten them. T- that had forced the Axis forces to retreat from uh, their marathon position. So uh, it, it was all in vain, really. Oh, nadgers, as I'm sure they said. Nadgers. <laughs> yes. So there's just one last defensive position the, the Germans take up in front of 8th Army. That's just beyond the port of, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, Gabes. 
G-A-B-E-S. Yeah, I think and that's about right. They're, they're in a, a range of hills overlooking a very steep-sided wadi. Wadi is, by the way, I have not mentioned it. It's a, va- it's a valley. Uh, wadi Akarat. It's a sort of natural anti-tank ditch, if you like. And the massed guns of Fifth Agra move forward. Massed guns. That's the point of this. Massed guns to support the final assault by 51st Highland Division. And this is uh, Lieutenant David Elliott talking about the position that B Troop took up. It was surrounded by a stone wall. It was such a joy to find cover for the guns for the first time and not have to dig in or pile stones around the wheels. We were able to take the guns right up against the wall with the olive trees about 10 foot high and a camouflage net. It was very difficult for an aeroplane to see we were there. Plus it gave shade to the troops. We'd already had orders from headquarters that there were booby traps about and nobody was to touch anything they didn't understand. Now that afternoon, they set themselves up in the gun positions in this uh, orchard, uh, uh, olive grove, sorry. And uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stansfield comes round with uh, Major uh, James Martin. So the officers, hello officers. Uh, And this is David Elliott again. We set off through the trees, each number one calling his detachment to attention as we approached. Lance Sergeant McCall stood smartly to attention as the CO questioned him about his preparations. He was one of my best NCOs and ran a very efficient gun detachment. The Colonel saluted the bronzed team of men standing in the sunlight in just their shorts and boots as we moved off towards the next gun pit. Hardly had we travelled ten yards when there was an awful explosion behind us. I turned to see Sergeant McCall lying on the ground in obvious agony and the whole gun pit shrouded in smoke. One gunner run, gunner run past us in a panic, clutching his stomach, and everything was in confusion. I reached Sergeant McCall, knelt beside him, and tried to ease his mangled hands away from his crutch where I could see a gaping wound through the tattered remnants of his shorts. As we waited for a stretcher party, we questioned the remaining very dazed gun crew. It appeared that somebody had picked up a small brass cylinder in one of the dugouts. In spite of our warnings, Sergeant McCall had been about to unscrew this thing as we approached and had been holding it concealed in his hand as he stood to attention talking to the colonel. No sooner had we turned our backs on him than his curiosity got the better of him and he unscrewed the booby trap with the disastrous result. Now, hang on, this, this is an experienced soldier. This, this isn't a newbie. Uh, one can't think what was going on. In, his name was Wallace McCall. That's uh, Sergeant Wallace McCall. Uh, so what happens to him? Well, the wounded, I suppose, they're evacuated, aren't they? Now, um, I, think, I think Elliot found this whole business dreadful, didn't he? And he, he visited uh, McCall in hospital. It was a tented field hospital. What does David Elliott say? This is an awful quote, I think. My sad memory is of him holding my hand and saying the words very common among the men at that time. Fucking roll on! Fucking roll on! He kept repeating it. He died next day. A very good man lost for a very silly reason. And I found this quite emotive. The whole thing. It, it it it's a terrible incident and it, it's sort of the the tragic pointlessness of it you're in you just fought your way all the way through the desert and then you're killed just unscrewing a thing um terrible now the final stages of the campaign 
the Sathots aren't involved. The Allied First and Eighth Army, they're, they're smashing the last threads, shreds of German resistance in Tunisia. Um, that by now, it's, it's the pattern of the campaign. Concentrated artillery fire augmented by ground-straffing fighter bombers, heavy bombing raids also, high-level bombing raids. And they just flay the Axis positions. If the Axis take up a position, that the Axis forces, that they're just bombed and blasted out of them. Uh, and that, it renders them... The idea is you, you break them and then the fast-moving assaults, the armour. This is where armour... And this is uh, perhaps for uh, some of our friends who think I don't like them. This is where armour is used. It, it's, it's a dramatic thing. Now, I'm going to give you the opportunity, because after uh, you might want to make some comments as what what this sort of tactics remind you of, Gary. What does it remind you of? Well, it's not just the armour. They're, they're working hand-in-hand hand with the infantry as well. So this is very much like the war-winning methods of 1918 in the Great War. This is an all-arms battle. Which is was conspicuously absent in the early days of the war. The British generals of nineteen thirty nine to forty two had not really grasped the basics that, we, that, that that our generals had understood in nineteen eighteen. Um, any attempts to counterattack by the Germans or Italians are just shrugged off or eliminated. Uh, what what are we talking about? What 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 what, what has won the day? Oh, sheer firepower. It boils down to the concentration of the uh, the, the guns, uh, as we you know we described throughout, uh, hitting hard, and uh, and it is the all arms battles. You know, you, the air superiority comes into into play, and uh, fast, uh, effective, hard hitting movement. Sheer firepower and movement, yeah, great, great. Now, in a show, it's a shame that 107 battery is not there to see the denouement, the the, the final thing. The, the, on the 7th of May, the, the British take Tunis, uh, Bizerte fell to the Americans, and uh, six days later, the the, uh, the, the Germans and Italians surrender. Uh, 250,000 men go into captivity. Wow. That's a lot, isn't it? That is a lot. And what happens to South Atazars, Gary? Well, they, they they hand over their guns and they they moved into a concentration area, which again is in a small olive grove close to the uh, uh, small Arab coastal village of Chariba, which is about twenty four miles from Sfax, and they get to to rest and recuperate. They 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 must have needed that, mustn't it? They, it, it must have. It, it was a, it's a pleasant environment. It sounds uh, very pleasant, doesn't it? And, and the men really enjoyed it. A, a lot of them talk a lot. If you look at the book, uh, if you should wish to buy a close, uh, I've forgotten what it's called. Um, <laughs> <laughs> at close range. At close range. If you look at the book, you'll find that there's quite a chapter on this because they remember it well. Because actually, that's the nature of men. They enjoy some of the good times and like to put some of the bad times out. Uh, it, it's. <laughs> But as I think it was Fred Astaire said, there may be trouble in store. And there was. Ahead. Ahead. So presumably generals just thought, oh, we'll leave them there. They can have fun for the rest of the war. No. No, no, they're rested by the sea. The 7th Medium Regiment, and that means 107 Battery. What's beckoning? What's beckoning? Sicily. And... But what I want to just go back to, because actually I can't get it out of my mind as we talk about this, I cannot get Sergeant Wallace McCall out of my mind and and what a tragic end. And just the words, you said it, fucking roll on. Uh, 
it must have been awful for his family, for his friends, to just to have somebody die in such circumstances. Well, I'm I'm assuming he's 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 wishing for death that that you know that he's he's he wants death to roll on. You know that's how I've interpreted that. He must have been in agonies. It must have been awful, and uh, uh, it's not stated, but uh, you might remember where he was wounded. Uh, or where one of the worst wounds was in the shorts area. I can imagine mm. how he felt. Mm. It was just awful. Well, on that sad note, let's uh, let's call it a day for today. Thank you very much for joining us. If any of you would follow us, it's always free. These podcasts are always free, and we love reviews. If you if you listen to it on one of the the the, the podcast providers that allow you to review, please review us. Uh, we've had lots of reviews. We've been called uh, not as funny Passive as aggressive. They th- Passive aggressive, not as funny as they think they are, and our favourite bitter twisted wankers. <laughs> Was it wankers? I can't remember. Anyway, <laughs> try try to think nicer thoughts than that when you review us, and uh, do please share our our tweets. That really helps. So, Gary, thank you very much for joining me, and uh, goodbye for now. Well, goodbye, Pete. Hopefully, the next time we do a recording, we won't be in lockdown and. Uh... It'll be good to to see you so I can throttle you in person. Well, when I go off-piste, as you so charming. You go off-piste. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, mate. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?